Thank you, Pastor Derek. It is indeed a delight and a pleasure to come up and see life in Stanwood today. To be, I've heard much about um, the Three Strand Network Church up here. We've prayed for you on a regular basis. We've prayed for Pastor Derek, and it's just great to have this connection with this church and now being able to physically be here and see you, and um, it's just a pleasure. <coughs> As um, Pastor Derek said, I am a lay elder at Restoration Road Church. I'm asked occasionally, well, what's the difference between a, a lay elder and a staff elder? Um, staff elders at our church are, are, are paid to be good. Um, but the lay elders are good for nothing. <laughs> so I'm a good for nothing lay elder that's come up here to open the word with you and share um, I am glad that you are a church that enjoys looking at the Word, reading the Word, um, not worshiping the Word, but letting the Word lead us to the author of the Word. And that's the purpose that we, um, we meet and we examine the Word and hear what it has to say. My text this morning, and I invite you to turn there with me, is Second Chronicles chapter 16. Go ahead and blow the dust off of this wonderful Old Testament book that probably has been a while since you have read. If you're anything like me, I don't go there as often as I should. But we're going to see a story from this section of Second Chronicles that may not be familiar with you. I'll read it, and then we'll get into explaining it. Second Chronicles chapter 16, the first nine verses. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between you and me as there was between my father and your father. Behold, now I am sending you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Basha had been building. And with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At, the, at that time, Hanai the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, and from now on you will have wars." The master storyteller, J.R.R. Tolkien, in his trilogy, Lord of the Rings, has an interesting conversation between Samwise Gamgee 
and Frodo Baggins. As they were making their way across Middle Earth en route to Mordor to return the Ring of Power, after a series of events that were rather difficult, Samwise turns to Frodo and says, we shouldn't be here at all if we had known more about this before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures, as I used to call them, I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went about and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull and a kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it at all with the tales that really mattered the, or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just landed in them. Usually their paths were laid out in that way, just as you put it. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder too, said Frodo, but I don't know. That's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you've, you're fond of. You may know or guess that kind of a tale that it is, a happy ending one or a sad ending. But the people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. I don't know many people here this morning. In fact, I don't know any of you. But I can probably say that there are some common things amongst all of us that we share. And that is that, you know, life inevitably happens to all of us. Maybe this last week or this last month or this last year, something has crossed your path that was unexpected. A phone call came from a relative or a test result came back from a doctor's office or a son or a daughter started behaving in irreverent ways or there might have been a job change or you fill in the blanks a hundred different ways that life tends to cross our paths sometimes and it's not what we expected it to be it's not what we wanted it to be it might be as simple as a flat tire on the way to work or the diagnosis of cancer. But life inevitably happens to all of us. If there is one thing that you want to hear from me and remember this morning, it would be this brief statement. Write it down on the margins of your Bible, maybe in the front leaf, because it's not specifically true about this text that we read, although it is true about this text, but it's true from Genesis to Revelation, and that is this. God delights in displaying His power, and God delights in delivering His people. Often those two things happen at the same time. But from the book of Genesis through Revelation, it is an overwhelming fact recorded in stories and in statements that God delights in displaying his power as well as delights in delivering his people. You're thinking ahead of me, aren't you? You're going, oh, he's going to have a health and wealth prosperity message this morning. and We're not that kind of a church. Did he take a wrong turn on the way here? No. Stay with me this morning. Please hear me out. But remember those two statements, and I'll repeat them because they're worth remembering. When we go through a moment of difficulty, whether it be a small one or an overwhelming one, we have to ask ourselves a series of questions. The first one, 
can I really trust God to get me through this? Secondly, can I wait for God to get me out of this bind? And third, I wonder how he will do it. Isn't that inevitably what happens when something comes across our path that puts us into a difficult situation, puts us into a bind, puts us into a, 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 a place where we're tempted to compromise? Can I really trust that God is sovereign? Can I trust that he is really powerful? Can I trust that he'll get me through this? Can I wait for him to get me out of this situation? And I wonder how he will do it. When Moses brought the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, and they came to the Red Sea, they began to doubt. They began to question. What? What? We had life secure back in Egypt, and now the Red Sea. You brought us out here in the desert to die, Moses. The sea parted. All the way through the Old Testament, encounter after encounter, even to the empty tomb, God has, is in the business of displaying his power and delivering his people. But our biggest temptation, if we're honest, that when we get into one of these situations, what is our temptation? We're very self-reliant. We're very independent folk. We're very resourceful. We want to manage, manipulate, and control the situation to get us out of that uncomfortable bind. We are fiercely independent. And so often we find ourselves being tempted to act in a way that is disloyal to our God. And we cross that line of what is righteous and good. This was King Asa's problem in what we read this morning. King Asa happened to be a relatively good king. I just want to refresh your memory of where we plugged into Old Testament history in this 16th chapter of 2 Chronicles. You'll remember that Israel, when it was a unified country, a unified nation, they had three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. They were a unified group. After Solomon died, a dispute rose who the successor to Solomon should be. The ten tribes that lived north did not agree with the two tribes that lived south, and so they separated. A civil war erupted in the nation, and they became two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Asa was one of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Basha was one of the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they did not always agree. They did not always cohabitate peacefully. They were battles and wars among them. Terrible, terrible tragedy happened in those years. And this is the book of Chronicles. The Old Testament rabbis attribute Ezra as the author of Chronicles, and he records in great detail the goings-on in, 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 in Israel and in Judah. Basha came up against Judah, and he set up a blockade against a city. He started to make fortifications surrounding this city in Judah. He didn't attack the city, but he made a blockade so that nothing could come in and nothing could go out. In 1995, my wife Donna and I had the privilege of going to St. Petersburg, 
Russia and teaching in a small itinerant Bible school there. The hotel that we stayed at was in one part of the city and the Bible school was in another and we would trek across um, the, the city to get to the metro station to take that metro station to where the Bible school was held. And each morning we would go through this rather expansive big park. It had statues and it had all kinds of things. And I inquired to our translator, I said, what, what is this park? It seems to be an important part of, of your city. He said, oh, th that's called Memorial Park or something similar to that in Russian. It was Memorial Park. And he said it was a park dedicated to all of the people that died when the German army in World War II set up a blockade around St. Petersburg, which was then called Leningrad, and many, many in the city died. You see, Hitler then sent 80% of his army. He had gone into France, and France had fallen so fast, he thought in a rather haughty way that, well, Russia was another one of his prize. He wanted to take Ru Russian territory. So he put 80% of his army along with some Finnish allies and put a blockade around Leningrad, which was then the capital of Russian, Russia. Stalin's army was no match for 80% of the Nazi army. So there was a standoff. And for over om almost 900 days, the Nazi army, the German army, surrounded Leningrad and didn't prevent anything from going in or anything from coming out. Historians say approximately one and a half million people in Leningrad starved during those two, two and a half years of blockade. People have reports of coming out and stripping the bark off of trees, trying to find something nourishing to eat in the Russian winter. They would eat their fur coats and eat their pets, terrible stories of cannibalism. That was life in Leningrad for two years because of the German army blockade. That's what Basha was wanting to do with King Asa in Judah, to blockade his city, to blockade the lifeblood of commerce coming in and going out. He wanted to starve them out, not attack them. He thought it would be too high of casualties. So, ba so King Asa was prevented with this situation. What do I do? How is God going to get me out of this bind? How can I wait for this to happen, to resolve itself? He had two options. He could trust God and wait for his deliverance and wonder how he would do it, or he could manipulate the situation. If you go back one chapter in chapter 15 of 2 Chronicles, the story there is of the Cushite army, which is the Ethiopians and the Libyan army coming together as allies and attacking Judah. A million soldiers, 300 chariots, overwhelming odds. Basha's army was, Asa's army was small in comparison, outnumbered more than two to one, no chariots. But he relied upon the deliverance of Jehovah God. He turned to him in prayer, turned to him in, in resource, and God drove out the Ethiopian army before them. And the plunder was incredible. And they brought back so much plunder from the war. Just one chapter previous to what we read, that was, that's what would happen. His response to this was, oh, 
I'm going to panic. I have to manipulate. I have to control. I have to do something because God is enable. His faith changed that fast. So he sends gold and silver to a pagan king. And what was the result? He was hailed at a, a smashing success. It worked. It did exactly what he wanted it to do. As soon as Basha, king of Israel, heard that the king of Syria had been attacking his northern cities, he stopped his building of the fortifications and went and defended his own territory. What Asa did proved to be an overwhelming success. We are often fully capable of playing that same game aren't we? We can pull strings, we can manipulate factors in order to see success. But don't always measure that success by God, with God's approval. I don't believe that God approved of what King Asa did. There are a thousand ways that you and I can both leave our love and loyalty to our Heavenly Father whether it be a financial bind, a relationship bind, a health bind, po popularity, prestige, you name it. Fill in the blank of where we are tested. Life happens. Life will come your way. If it didn't happen this last week, well, this next week might be different. And we all are put in that situation where we have options. What are we going to do? Can we trust God to get us out of that bind, His way? Can we wait for the deliverance that He'll offer us? Can we wonder how He would do it? Or will we take the matter into our own hands? I love the story of Jonathan Edwards. You may be familiar with him. He was a preacher in North, Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, back when it was a colony in the mid-1700s. He was one of the ones responsible, or not responsible for, obviously God was responsible. He was a main character in the First Great Awakening, as it's called, a revival in colonial America. Um, he was pastor of a church for 20-some years there in Northampton. And he came to a point in his ministry in that church where he, because of his reading of Scripture, thought that it was only right that true believers, true Christians, True followers of Jesus could participate in communion. The church's policy before that point was it was available to anybody who walked in the door. So he started teaching and preaching this amendment that he felt compelled to do, that the believers only should participate in the Lord's Supper. Well, that wasn't taken lightly by many people in the congregation. And so a dispute arose amongst half of the congregation and he was aware of that, but the dispute went on for a long period of time, and pretty soon the rumors started to fly, and the, those in his congregation that opposed him started saying false things about his personal conduct and about his ministry and accusing him publicly of immorality. The group of church members that sided with him said, Jonathan, you need to make yourself 
available for defense. You need to defend yourself. You need to make a stand. You need to publicly denounce these, these, these accusations and say of, talk of your integrity. He said, no, God will defend me. God will defend. It went on and on until there was a vote in the church and the, over, the majority voted to replace him as pastor of the church. His farewell sermon was heartfelt and gracious, and he felt compelled after he left Northampton Church to go to the mission field, which was the Indian Territory, which was just then at the, the far western side of the colony of Massachusetts. That was, that was wilderness. And he went there, and he started a mission amongst the Indians. And for seven years, he labored and saw a revival amongst the Indian nations and tribes there. It was during this period of time that he devoted much time to writing. He became and still is one of America's foremost theologians. And he went from there after seven years and he became the first president of Princeton Theological Seminary. So his life after that time was God-directed, God-ordained, and God-blessed. He felt it necessary to wait for God's deliverance, to seek God's favor, and it didn't end well for him. He would have rather have pastored in the church. But he was willing to look at God's deliverance as his leading, and God blessed him. I see two huge red flags in King Asa's life. He took gold and silver from the temple, from the household of God. He had no right to do that. He had access to it as king, but he had no right to take that silver and gold from the temple the temple, and use it for his own purposes. And he was willing then, secondly, to let a pagan foreign king intervene. Huge red flags. He was making accommodations. He was making concessions. God had constantly delivered him before. And God had brought them peace and prosperity. What's our lesson to learn from that fact? Well, making a good stand today doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee that we'll follow that same pattern next week. We're human, aren't we? We are frail. We have feet of clay. We need constant encouragement, constant accountability, constant fellowship with believers that help us to walk consistently, straightforwardly, without slipping away. Our current series at Restoration Road is going through the book of Hebrews. And the author there is encouraging his audience, don't slip away, don't fall to the sideline, hold fast. We need that encouragement as believers, don't we? Because success today doesn't guarantee it next week or next year. We need to be constantly diligent. What should our response be when we hit these parts of life that puts us in binds? Should we act responsibly? Of course. Of course we should act responsibly. There is a popular notion, I don't know how popular today or if you've heard of it, I'm sure you have, and that is the, the philosophy that says, well, just let go and let God. You know, Become absolutely passive. Whatever comes along your way, just let go of it and let God take care of it. Don't act. Let God. I don't know that that's entirely true we are called upon many times to act responsibly, to act morally, to act righteously. 
But you know, you can remind me of that, that famous Bible verse, you know, God helps those who help themselves. I'm glad that you're laughing, because that's not a Bible verse, is it? No, not at all. We, when, our, when we're confronted with things, at times, if we're directed and led to make a stand, to make a proclamation, we should act righteously and morally. But realize that it's also scriptural that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Ultimately, the score is going to be settled by divine action. God will someday, someday, somewhere, somewhere, some way, intervene and settle the score. It might not be in our lifetime. It might not be the point where we can always see the end result of evil action. But God promises that he will repay. Choose righteous options, moral choices, and godly behavior. That's what we're called to do as believers. We're given God's word with many instructions of what correct and righteous behavior is. Asa chose wrong. It brought initial success, but ongoing trouble. Ongoing trouble. Is it possible to guarantee success? Is it possible to follow biblical guidelines and guarantee success? It depends how you define success. Maybe we won't see the inevitable result of the predicament that we're in or observing or a part of, but we are called to do certain things, choose righteous options, to think biblically, to think biblically. The world tries to shove us, shove us into its mold, Peter, uh, Paul says in Romans, but he says, don't let the world shove you into its mold. Be renewed in your thinking. Think biblically. Trust, wait, and wonder. Three more words that I have written throughout Scripture to remind me. Trust, wait, and wonder how it's going to end. Two practical how-tos. All right. I hear you, preacher. I hear what you're saying. I see what Asa did against Basha the king. What, what's some practical ways that I can accomplish that in the struggles, the binds that I find myself in currently? Two things. Do a head check and do a heart check. A head check. Remind yourself. Write it in your Bible. Write it in your notebook. God delights in displaying his power. That's the God that we serve and worship. He delights in displaying his power. And he delights in delivering his people. Remind yourself of that fact. Don't, don't, don't walk away from it. It's true. Throughout scripture, it's true. That's the God that we love and serve and worship. He delights in displaying his power. And he delights in delivering his people. Tell yourself that. Do a head check. And then do a heart check. Look at verse 9 with me. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Maybe I've seen Monsters, Inc. one too many times, but I just see this pair of eyeballs that are running around. <laughs> That's the, the visual image that he's trying to portray here. God 
with these eyes, he's going to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's looking. What's he looking? He's searching. What's he searching for? Someone whose heart is blameless toward him. That's a very interesting word, blameless. It's very colorful. It's very broad. It's very detailed. It's used of a group of, of soldiers that King David had in his army that were completely dedicated to his cause, to his integrity, to his pursuit, to his goal. Their integrity was unquestioned. Their loyalty was undiminished and undiscounted, without compromise. That's what that word blameless means. Loyal, uncompromised, without diminished uh, loyalty, obedient. That's whose heart God is looking for. That's interesting. That's great. How do I know if I'm there? Is there a test? Can I take my temperature? Well, I think that there might be some indications in your life and my life if those two things are true. First, is your life characterized more by peace and patience rather than panic? Ouch. When those things in life come that puts us in binds, our natural, immediate reaction is to panic. Oh, no! I didn't plan on this! I didn't see this coming. This is out of left field. What, what do I do? I panic because it's uncomfortable. It's not nice. It's painful many times. We panic. But if we do the head check and heart check properly, our life will be more characterized by peace and patience rather than panic. Secondly, ask yourself this question. Would you rather suffer a material and physical loss or a spiritual one? Ouch again. You see, we're, we're, we're planted pretty firmly in this earth, aren't we? We can touch and feel and handle and smell and see. The things that are rather physical are important to us, and rightly so. Our life consists many times of physical things. But if we're willing to suffer a loss of those physical things because the spiritual reality is more important, God's kingdom is more important than our earthly kingdom. Are we willing to suffer a material or a physical loss rather than a spiritual one? And third, is our life more set on the glory of God or the glory of self? I am encouraged by the story of Abraham for many, many reasons. But when he was promised an heir, his first response was, uh, that's not going to happen. Not in my, I'm too old, but my, you've seen my wife, Sarah. No, that's not going to happen. Many years later, as he was given that heir in a miraculous way, I can just imagine Abraham, as most of you who are parents, your firstborn, <laughs> beautiful baby. Look at this baby. Look at what God did, because I couldn't have done this. Sarah couldn't have done this. God had to do this. And he's going from tent to tent to tent, showing people this baby. Look at this baby. Beautiful baby. This is what God did. This is what God did. There's our option. 
when God gets you out of a bind and provides salvation for whatever situation we find ourselves in, we say, look at what God did. Look at how God worked. Look at how he delivered us. Look at the glory that he deserves. This is what God did to deliver me. I'll finish with another story, another conversation from the Lord of the Rings, this time between Frodo and Gandalf. Frodo was at a point of utter frustration. He was in journey again with that ring of power, and he had had enough. It was just too difficult for him. And he said, Gandalf, I, I can't do this. I wish, I, had I wish this had never come to me. I wish it had not have happened in my time. Gandalf said, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. I don't know what you might be struggling or facing this week or what will come across your path next week. It will. Life will happen. It always does. How do we respond to it? Remind yourself that God loves to deliver his people and he loves to display his power. Give yourself a heart check. Are you completely devoted? God's eyes are looking. He's searching. He's wondering where he's going to find that follower of him that is devoted to him. The resource we have in our great Savior, Jesus Christ, has given us access to the Heavenly Father. He's given us the resources of heaven. He has given us his promises, great promises in Christ. That's what I hope I will turn to and look like. That's what I hope you, as a brother and sister in Christ, will hope will look like. When life comes at us, we won't manipulate and twist and turn and try to achieve what we determine is a good outcome, but we'll, we'll be trusting that God will get us through it. We'll wonder how he will do it, and we'll wait for him to accomplish that. Pray with me.